All right, I'm getting out the way. David's been up here the past two uh, Wednesdays, um, or two Wednesdays. It's kind of been a break in between, but uh, teaching on the place of prayer. So uh, can we welcome David Ravenhill on up here? Okay, we've had a little bit of an interruption along the way, but uh, we're back tonight. We want to look at uh, spiritual warfare. How many of you know we have a God that is a God of war? The Bible says, lift up your heads, O ye gates, be ye lifted up, you everlasting doors, that the King of glory may come in, who is the Lord, uh, he's the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. God is a God of war, and uh, one of the first things he gave man to do was to uh, exercise dominion. He's all right. There is a twofold theme. Uh, Sam gave me a book this week on uh, kings and priests. I said, I'm just about ready to do a study on that after we uh, get through surviving the anointing in the uh, Maranatha class. But right from the get-go, uh, God designated us into a twofold function, that of a priest and a king. The priestly side was access into the presence of God, the first tabernacle, if you like, where God came in the cool of the day. Man had fellowship, relationship with Him. That's the highest order of the priesthood. It's not the outward uh, or the outer court. It's the uh, ministry to the Lord Himself. That's the highest function of the priesthood. And then He said, you're to have dominion. So the kings and priests, we can trace that all the way through the Bible. Children of Israel, when they came out of Egypt, asked the question with a little bit of a moan in their voice, but they asked nevertheless, uh, Moses, why have you brought us out here? And he says, I brought you out that you might be a kingdom of priests, kings and priests. We can follow that all the way through to the uh, book of Revelation. So that's twofold function. And uh, the kingly side, obviously, is taking dominion. And it's something I believe that uh, we need to enter into and something that we have failed, I think, to enter into as a, uh, as a church. And I'm talking about not as a church here necessarily, but as the, the church at large. The Bible says the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. And uh, we are to uh, wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And in the Old Testament, again, we have in uh, Hebrews 11, the great exploits of faith, they subdued kingdoms. And uh, if that was true in the natural, then how about the spiritual? First the natural, then the spiritual. There are kingdoms. There is a kingdom of, that is in conflict right now seeking to destroy our nation. What are we doing about it? You know, do we take it seriously? Do we, do we believe that we really can come against the powers of darkness? You know, God's not going to give us rifles and so on, but we do have weapons of our warfare that are mighty to, to the pulling down of strongholds. And uh, there's uh, various weapons that we can use. But anyway, uh, let me just uh, go back very quickly to uh, Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus said, and I'll uh, just go right to the verse, verse 29. How can one enter a strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first bind the strong man? Not as a last resort, but first of all, take care of the strong man. We looked at uh, various strong men, a strong man over uh, an individual. In the case of the uh, demoniac, a strong man over a group of individuals. In case of Elamus, uh, uh, a magician who was bringing frustration to Paul and uh, um, Paul and Barnabas, was it? Yeah. Uh, and uh, he said, how long are you going to, you know, twist the Word of God? It was going on for many, many uh, minutes, if not hours, as they sat there, Paul trying to get through to this uh, 
proconsul the Word of God. Proconsul was anxious to hear the Word of God, and yet Elymas is interjecting all the time and bringing confusion. And Paul says, you know, when will you cease? So in other words, there was an extended period of time. How long those two words are used in that verse. So it wasn't just something that took place in a, a moment of time. Then we looked at a strong man over a city in the case of uh, Diana and the, uh, the goddess Diana and the power that she had that influenced literally the entire world, the Bible says, at that particular time. And uh, Paul says, there's a wide and effectual door of ministry uh, open to me, but there are many adversaries. One of the uh, uh, things that Paul faced that he didn't seem to face, at least to the same uh, degree, was the opposition in Ephesus. And so when he writes to the Ephesians, he deals with the matter of spiritual warfare. He doesn't do that uh, talking to the Romans and the uh, Corinthians and so on and so forth. I'm sure there was spiritual warfare everywhere, but there was a, uh, a very strong encounter against what he was doing. There are many adversaries, he said. And uh, he mentions, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. I believe those were demonic uh, entities that he was uh, fighting against. All right, with that in mind, let's go now to a strong man over a, uh, a nation. And, of course, we have an uh, example of that in Daniel chapter 10. Daniel has been praying, seeking God. At the end of three weeks, the angel of the Lord appears to him and says, from the very first day that you set your heart on understanding uh, what, uh, what he was praying about, uh, he said, I, God heard you, and he sent me in response. And three weeks have gone by, and you say, well, why was there a three-week um, uh, time? And uh, the angel gives the, uh, uh, the response, the king of Persia withstood me. In other words, there was spiritual opposition. Here was a godly man seeking the mind of God, seeking counsel, seeking insight into what was going on and, uh, with his own people, but he was in the nation of Persia. And the king of Persia, that spiritual entity that controlled the affairs of that nation stood there and saying, not on my watch. You're not going to get through. The kingdom of God is not going to be advanced on my watch and so on. And so the angel sends a message to the throne and God sends Michael, the chief prince. So you've got a prince dealing with a prince. It's interesting that uh, chapter, that at the end of the chapter, he says, I'm going back to engage in the, in the battle and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. And there's two ways of interpreting that. One is that the Prince of Greece uh, didn't have any sort of conflict over in Greece at that particular time. And so just the same way this angel calls in uh, another angel, a higher-ranking angel, to combat this principality, so the principality is able to call in another principality. That's one interpretation. The other is that the next uh, great um, force against the, uh, the kingdom of God was going to be Greece. And uh, so you can take it either way. I know over the years, and if you've been involved in spiritual warfare, there's every dimension of weirdness uh, when it comes to spiritual warfare. You know, renting uh, 747s and flying over the heavenlies and binding principalities because they're in heavenly places. I mean, all sorts of things. And I could uh, keep you laughing for hours almost on some of the things I've read. But uh, anyway, there's, uh, there's the, uh, uh, the belief with some people that you have to dig back into the archives in, uh, in the area where you live and find out, you know, what was it that caused Lakeland to be founded in the beginning. Maybe there was a gold rush and a bunch of prostitutes came in to satisfy the needs of the, uh, the, the miners and so on. And so there's a principality of lust here or whatever it is and so on and so forth. The fact is the Prince of Persia 
Oh, sorry, the Prince of Greece may arrive in the morning, and uh, you cannot find in the archives anything about the Prince, of, uh, the Prince of Greece. He is coming on the scene. That's not in the history books, and so things can change. So I just say there's got to be balance with that. But anyway, turn with me over into uh, 1 Samuel, <clears throat> chapter 17. And this is a well-known story. Unfortunately, it's been a story that we've relegated to the Sunday school department. When I was a little boy, we had our song, Only a Boy Named David, Only a Tiny Sling, and, you know, round and round we went, and we fall on the flower, and, uh, you know, Goliath collapses, and so on. So um, let's go back to uh, the beginning, 1 Samuel 17, and uh, verse 2, And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah, and they, grew up in, uh, they uh, drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on one side. Israel stood on a mountain on the other side with a valley between them. Mountains in the Bible many times are significant of uh, kingdoms. The Bible says in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established in Jerusalem. Mountains in the natural are a formidable force, if you like. But also uh, we have Mount Zion. Even when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, God had one particular mountain in mind. He says, I am going to bring you to the mountain of mine inheritance. Mount Zion was always in the eye of God long before the children of Israel even knew about it. But mountains, you've got two mountains. There's always kingdoms in conflict, two kingdoms, kingdom of God, kingdom of Satan. Here you've got the Philistines representing the enemy, and obviously the children of Israel, God's people, representing uh, their king, uh, God himself. And so it says, the Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, Israel on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And then a champion came out from the army of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. That word champion, if you look it up in uh, Strong's, it literally means a strong man. Remember, we're dealing with this principle, bind the strong man and then you will spoil his goods. In other words, the, str the strong man is the key in the strategy of defeating the enemy. Find out who the strong man is, so to speak. So this man, uh, again, Goliath, or champion rather, the word champion means a strong man. The word uh, Goliath, on the other hand, literally means a, an exile or a soothsayer. He represents an exile or a soothsayer. What is an exile? An exile is somebody who was once a part of a kingdom, but because of their skullduggery or, you know, whatever, they were thrown out of that kingdom, and now they are living in exile. You know, you go back to the Philippines, and remember Imelda Marcus? She was the gal that had 16,000 pair of shoes or something, almost as many as my wife. No, no, that's not right. But uh, anyway, had all... <laughs> just a joke. Um, but her husband was the guy that, uh, you know, took all the cream of all the money that came in for the uh, Philippines and as a result was kicked out of his kingdom. He was once the most uh, uh, prominent person in the Philippines, and yet he became a man that lived in exile. We gave him uh, the ability to live in Hawaii until he died. I forget how many years ago that was, but anyway, a number of years ago. So the devil at one time was part of God's kingdom. Isn't that right? And uh, because of his uh, sin, his pride, his evil, and so on and so forth, he was thrown out, and therefore he's in exile. So here we have a perfect type, if you like, of the, uh, the strong man, Goliath from Gath. 
Let's go down to verse 8. And he stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel and said, Why do you come up, uh, come out and draw in battle array? Am I not, and notice the way he uh, reveals himself, am I not the Philistine? Not a Philistine, obviously he was, but am I not the Philistine and you are servants of Saul? The first thing that the enemy will try and do is make us look at who we are in the natural. You're just a servant of Saul. In other words, you're not a son of God, you're not a child of God, you're just a servant of Saul. But I am the Philistine. In other words, he will magnify himself and belittle who you are. And one of the strategies of war is at least we need to know who we are, who we are in Christ, what Christ has done for us, and so on and so forth. So he said, am I not the Philistine, you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me, he is a strong man now, and kill me, then we will become your servants. In other words, I am the key to this whole situation. If you destroy me, you'll have no trouble getting rid of the rest of us. Again, bind the strong man, spoil his goods. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give us a man that we may fight together. And so here is the challenge. I believe it's an eternal challenge between the enemy that uh, is saying, listen, give us a man that we may fight together. And uh, it says, when Saul and all Israel heard these words, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Verse 11. They chose Saul for one reason. He was head and shoulders above the people. He was a mighty man in the natural, and therefore he was a formidable foe, if you like, or a, uh, in the eyes of the, uh, the enemy. And yet here is Saul now running because all of a sudden there is somebody who is head and shoulders above Saul. And they don't know how to handle that. Why? Because they're looking, as the Bible, as the old hymn says, the arm of flesh will fail you. And they, all they could see is Saul and somebody greater than Saul. We'll see how that changed. And so it says, when they heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Then we're introduced to uh, David, verse 15. David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock in Bethlehem. And the Philistine came forward morning and evening for 40 days, and he took his stand. Forty in the Bible, obviously, is always a time of testing. Uh, children of Israel, 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus tempted for 40 days and so on. So this is a, uh, a type, again, of, uh, of the test. And he is challenging, if you like, the church, if I can look, put it that way, so that we're not just looking at this in a historical setting. Let's uh, put it into a practical setting. Basically, he's saying to the church, give us a man that we may fight together. You know, let's modernize it a little bit. And so this goes on, verse 19 uh, David is sent uh, into the, uh, uh, to visit his brothers, and his father says, For Saul and all the men of Israel are in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. Notice there is a certain conflict that is going on. There is a certain warfare, if you like, that is going on, but nobody is prepared to go against Goliath. And to me, that sort of typifies the church. You know, we will do everything we can, and rightly so, to do a little bit of conflict, but it's the spirit behind that thing that needs to be dealt with. Is that right? You know. And so uh, they are not prepared, or at least they were afraid. 
Verse 20, David rose early in the morning. He left the flock with a keeper, and he took the supplies, and he went as Jesse had commanded him, and he came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array, shouting the war cry. So here they've just had this incredible time of praise and worship. They've just had these warfare songs, you know, and the, you know, we've, God's got an army marching through the land or whatever it was, or if you want to date it a little older, onward Christian soldiers. But, uh, you know, here they are, they're all pumped up and so on, and then all of a sudden Goliath sticks his head on the scene and they panic. It says, And all Israel drew up in battle array, army against army, and David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper. He ran to the battle line and entered in order to greet his brothers. And as he was talking with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines, and he spoke these same words. What were the words? Give us a man that we may fight together. Forty days, forty nights, he issues a challenge to the church. Don't you have anybody that is willing to take me up? And David, the Bible says, heard him, or he heard them, he heard the words. Obviously, the children of Israel heard them in that sense, but uh, the word here is more hearken. David responded. Something was triggered inside him. You know, how dare this man, you know, stand up against the armies of the living God? Notice he says, and then um, verse 24, And when all the men of Israel saw him, or saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. In other words, you've got God's people with God behind them, God as their king. Well, they'd rejected God as their king, but at least God was still their God. And they are fleeing in the face of adversity. They're fleeing in the face of this challenge. They don't know how to handle it. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who is coming up? Notice their focus was on this man. Have you seen this man? That was the topic of their conversation. I remember back maybe 40 years ago now, taking a, a group of uh, YWAMers. We drove from Halifax, Nova Scotia to San Francisco uh, to uh, work with the, uh, uh, in Chinatown. And we were working with Pentecostal churches. I won't name the brand. But uh, anyway, every single one of them, when we were there, we were there for about a week, they kept saying, have you seen this man? In other words, they said, you know about San Francisco, don't you? And they educated us. San Francisco, they said, is the evangelist graveyard. In other words, all they could talk about, have you seen this man? Have you seen this man? Have you seen this man? And David, uh, notice, he has a different approach. He says, and, uh, and it will be that the king who will enrich the man and kills him uh, sorry, let me go back. Uh, have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he is coming up to defy Israel. And it will be that the king who will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter, make his father's house free in Israel. And David spoke to the men who were standing with him, saying, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? David's motivation, again, is, listen, there is a reproach on the house of God, on the people of God, on the kingdom of God, and nobody seems to be concerned about it. That this man will defy the army of the living God, and nobody seems to be worried about it. 
Notice he doesn't jump up and down and say, boy, I've always wanted the daughter of Saul as my wife. He gets one of them, but uh, that's not his motivation. And then he says, uh, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that she should defy or taunt the armies of the living God? Notice what he says now. He doesn't say this Philistine. That's what Goliath said. Am I not the Philistine? David refers to him as an uncircumcised Philistine. In other words, he's cut off from all the covenants of God. He has no relationship with God, but we do. We are part of the army of the living God. God has an army, and we are part of that army. And so David sees the right perspective here. His brothers find out about it, verse 28, and it says, Eliab's anger burned against David, and he said to them, Why have you come down? With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence, the wickedness of your heart, for you've come down in order to see the battle. You will always have a well-meaning brother when you got involved in spiritual warfare that will try and, you know, hey, cool down, brother, don't get so excited, you know, blah, blah, blah. I mean, look, you know, there's no way we can take care of this Goliath or whatever. The other thing that his brother did, he brought an accusation against him. What about the few sheep in the wilderness? I'm sure that was a bit of a put-down, you know, the few sheep, you know, you, you, you can't even look after a few sheep. Let me just say this, because if you go back to um, verse uh, 20, David rose early in the morning, he left the flock with a keeper. You know, the enemy is good at accusations. And if he can find an area in your life of weakness, of disobedience, then he can stop you dead in your tracks. In other words, it's the little things, the little foxes that spoil the vine. And if the enemy can find some sort of accusation, again, you know, oh my goodness, what about those sheep? I, I, I should be back there. And, you know, no, he's taking care of the little things. We need to take care of the little things in our own life so the enemy doesn't have any grounds. Jesus said, Satan cometh, he has what? Nothing in me. No legal grounds. I think many times we provide a legal ground for the enemy to harass us or whatever. And we've got to make sure that we deal with that and only the blood of Jesus, of course, can cleanse us. He now comes uh, to uh, Saul. And David said to Saul, verse 34, Your servant was tending his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and he took a lamb from the flock. I went out after him, attacked him, rescued it from his mouth, and when he rose up against me, I seized him by the beard, struck him, and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted or defied the army of the living God. Now, David had some credentials, and uh, you'll notice who he gives credit to. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the poor of the lion and the poor of the bear. He doesn't sort of pull his toga apart here and show, you know, six gold medals and say, listen, Saul, one of the things you may not know about me, the last six Olympics, I was number one with a slingshot. And I, I can do it in my own strength. No, he doesn't brag about his ability with a slingshot. The Lord is the one. I personally believe that if he'd have fired that rock in the opposite direction, it would have ricocheted and still brought down the target. You know, it was God that was in control. Yes. All he's looking for is an obedient servant. Amen. And so he said, the Lord who delivered me from the poor of the lion. And then, of course, Saul says, okay, you know, put on your, take the sword and so on. And 
David said, I cannot go with these, verse 39, for I have not tested them. And David took them off. I remember Winky Prattney many, many years ago just uh, playing this out. Saul, of course, was head, head and shoulders above the people, so you can imagine the size of his armor. David was a young man at the time, possibly six or eight inches uh, shorter, and so David's, you know, got this armor on that's way too top-heavy, and he's looking through the breastplate, and he said, I don't think this is going to work, you know. But anyway, he took them off, and he took a stick in his hand, chose for himself five smooth stones, and uh, put them in his shepherd's bag, even in his pouch, and his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. The reason he chose five uh, uh, smooth so, uh, stones was the fact that uh, Goliath had four brothers. And the Bible tells us at the end of uh, uh, 2 Samuel 21 that David killed, or at least David and his men killed uh, the, uh, the brothers of, uh, of Goliath. It wasn't that he was a bad shot, and uh, of course uh, some of my friends who get uh, caught up in typology and so on say that the five stones represent the fivefold ministry. That's a little bit of a stretch for me, but uh, I believe it was the fact that he had uh, done his research and he thinks just in case, you know, one of the brothers is hanging around, I'll take care of him as well, which eventually he did. So uh, verse 41, and the Philistine came and he approached David with his shield bearer in front of him. You'll notice that David never wastes a stone against the shield bearer. I think many times when it comes to spiritual warfare, we're praying against shield bearers and not Goliaths. Let's assume that we're renting this facility and uh, we've grown out of it and the only other facility in the area is some high school gymnasium that's twice the size of this one. And so we approach the school about using the gymnasium and so on, and they're all in agreement apart from one man. And, uh, you know, his name is Mr. Whatever. And uh, we begin to pray, and we're praying against Mr. Whatever and so on and so forth. Now, there's something behind Mr. Whatever, if you like, that we need to really have our eyes open to. He's just a shield bearer, so to speak. David doesn't say, you know, I'll never get to Goliath. I've got to take care of the shield bearer. He goes directly for the, uh, the problem. The Philistine looked, and he saw David, and he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy with a handsome appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine also said to David, Come to me, and I will give you a flesh to the birds of the sky, to the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the army of Israel, whom you have defied or taunted. Again, David knew that he was going, not in his own strength. The Bible says, be strong in what the Lord and in the strength of his might. David was going in the strength of his might, uh, uh, God's might. Uh, and uh, we have to do the same thing. We do not have our own strength. We can't rely. Again, the arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. We have to have that relationship with God. We have to know who we are in Christ, what Christ has done for us, the fact that Christ lives in us and dwells within us, and so on, that we have that authority given to us, and uh, we can come against whatever obstacle we're, uh, we are in conflict with. And so he says, Am I a dog? You come to me with sticks. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Notice David didn't have to go and get deliverance. He had a curse on him. No, the Bible says there's no divination against Jacob. There's no divination against Jacob. You cannot, uh, 
you know, put a curse on somebody unless there is a, a, a curse without a cause, the Bible says, will not light. In other words, there has to be a reason. There has to be an open door. There has to be some sin in your life or whatever for that curse to take effect. David is not terrified because of the curse of the enemy. And uh, again, this man represents the devil. He is not only, uh, you know, di different tribes in the Bible, at least the, uh, the Amalekites were called the sinners, the Amalekites. And when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, the very first thing to, uh, to they battled with was what? The Amalekites. And the first thing that you will battle with the moment you are delivered from sin is what? Sin. And uh, that's, that's the thing that wants to come back into your life, wants to dominate your life, and so on. So the sinners are called the Amalekites, but the Philistines are called the Soothsayers, the Philistines. In Isaiah, I think it's chapter 3, you'll have to look it up, I'm pretty sure it's Isaiah chapter 3, refers to them, the influences of the East, the Soothsayers, like the Philistines. So the, the Philistines were a type of the, uh, the enemy, the, the uh, demonic realm. And so this is what uh, David is up against. All right, he said, the, verse 46, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. I will give your dead bodies to the army of the Philistines this day to the birds. Uh, I will give you the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky, the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel. Notice, I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines. David was not just after a trophy. He was not wanting to put a picture of him and Goliath, you know, on his magazine for the month. He was uh, far more serious about that. He understood this principle, bind the strong man, because Goliath himself said, if you take care of me, we will become your servants. David is after wiping out, again, the strong man's house, the Philistines. And then he says that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel. He is out to promote God's name. Not his own name. He's not there, you know, trying to uh, build a resume and, and so on. Incidentally, David has killed the lion and the bear. Let me just say this. When it comes to spiritual warfare, don't go after Goliath unless you've killed a few lions and bears. You are dealing with an enemy, and he is good at what he does. He is powerful. He has, uh, you know, thousands of years of experience, so to speak, uh, and so on. So don't mess with him in that sense. Even... Uh, you know, Satan, uh, the, the Bible says Moses didn't bring a railing accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And you know, sometimes the evangelist gets carried away and talks about the, you know, the, the devil is always some old lion with his teeth knocked out and so on. You know, if he is, he's still got a lot of power, and we need to recognize that. But kill the lion and the bear. We go from faith to faith, victory to victory. You know, we, we increase in our knowledge. We increase in our skill and so on. The safety, obviously, is in numbers. One will chase a thousand, two, ten thousand. So we, you may be weak, but if we get enough weakness together, we have strength. Isn't that right? But don't do it alone. Uh, David, obviously, is doing it alone in the sense, but he's already got a track record behind him, and we should have the, the same thing. So he says that all the earth may know there's a God in Israel. David is jealous for God's name. You know, I, I think if there's one theme in the Bible, the ultimate theme is for my namesake. For my namesake, you know. That is the ultimate theme of the Bible, my namesake. Not your name, his name. God is jealous of his name. 
And David, you know, was no wonder he was a man after God's own heart. God, your name has been reproached. Your name, you know, you're, you're, they were saying Dagon and the third God and so on is greater than you. And boy, something in David that rose up and said, you know, something is wrong here. And so he says that all the earth may know there's God in Israel. And then he has to ask, uh, or add, I should say, something rather sad, verse 47, and that all this assembly may know that God does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hands. It's one thing to let the world know that our God reigns. It's another thing when the church doesn't know. That's a really, really, really sad statement. And yet I think it's true today. You know, we don't really believe that we have the upper hand. We don't really believe that uh, God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask. I mean, you know, we quote it, but do we really believe it? That all this assembly may know. These were God's people, but they didn't really believe that their God was adequate enough or strong enough to meet the, uh, this, uh, this Philistine. Verse 47, all the assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's. He will give you into our hands. And it happened when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, that David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. Notice the difference between verse 48 and verse 24. And when the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him. David runs towards him. The rest of the crew ran from him. That's the difference between unbelief and faith. You know, David runs into the situation. And David put his hand in his bag. He took from it a stone and he slung it. He struck the Philistine on the forehead and the stone sank into his forehead. So he fell on his face to the ground. Verse 51, and David ran, stood over the Philistine. He took his sword, drew it out of its sheath and killed him, cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Verse 53, And the sons of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and plundering their camps. Jesus said, Bind the strong man and you will plunder his goods. Bind the strong man, you'll plunder his goods. And that's exactly what they were able to do as soon as Goliath was taken care of they didn't have a hope. All of a sudden, there's dead bodies everywhere. The children of Israel now move in and plundered the, uh, the Philistines' camp. I believe there is a realm that God is wanting the church to enter into. Not just this church, but uh, the church of Jesus Christ, where we really do believe that there is an authority to declare war over the enemy and over the adversary. Obviously, we have weapons. Thank God we don't have to use slingshots anymore. Uh, isn't that good? Otherwise, we may not uh, be very effective. Uh, we may kill a brother or sister instead. But uh, we do have weapons. And the Bible gives us those weapons. One of those weapons is the blood. Isn't that right? Yes. I know a lot of people plead the blood as though it's some sort of rabbit's foot. And it's magic. No, it's on the basis of what that blood represents. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testament. It was what their, that blood did. Jesus Christ defeated the enemy. I think there is a, uh, I remember Jim Gall. Anybody know Jim Gall? Uh, 
Okay, Jim Gall uh, and uh, myself used to uh, work together there with uh, Mike Bickle many, many years ago. And uh, Jim Gall told me, he said, one day I was praying, and he said, God told me that one of the greatest weapons the church has, if not the greatest weapon, he said, is communion. Is communion. And uh, let me, uh, in fact, uh, let me take you back to Exodus 12 for a moment so I can tie this together. These are some of our weapons. Exodus 12, of course, is the Passover. The Passover is the, uh, the, uh, the strongest typology, if you like, of the, uh, uh, the new birth, salvation, and so on, the blood of the Lamb. But uh, something happened in verse 12. It says, And I will go through the land of uh, Egypt on that night. I will strike down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both of man and of beast, and against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. In other words, Egypt was into uh, demonic activity. Obviously, when uh, Moses confronted them and threw down his rod and Pharaoh wasn't overly impressed, he called in his magicians, they threw down their rods, and they too turned into serpents. And uh, so they, they were operating in a very powerful, if you like, demonic realm. But God says, listen, tonight I'm going to show you who is God. I am the Lord over all the gods of Egypt. And the Bible says in Colossians that he stripped principalities of powers and he declared, I am the Lord, basically. And when we take those emblems, I remember uh, Jim telling me this, when we take those emblems, we declare, you know, we make a declaration, you know, do this in remembrance of me. What does this blood represent? Not only does it represent forgiveness, it represents victory over the enemy. That... uh, and there's something about communion, I believe this for many, 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 many years now, that we have not ever tapped into. It becomes more of a PS at the end of a meeting, down the hatch and out the door. You know, but there is a power, I believe, out of all the ordinances that God gave. You know, there's only three, really, in the New Testament. The Old Testament is full of all sorts of ordinances. Man, you had to know how to carve up the turkey, so to speak, or the offering, this bit went here, and this bit you can eat, and this bit goes to the priest. I mean, you, man, they had a zillion different things to go through. But in the New Testament, you've only got a few ordinances. Marriage is one, baptism is one, some people throw in uh, foot washing, but basically the other one is communion. Two of them are supposed to be one-timers. doesn't say as often as you get married. Uh, <laughs> okay. As often as you are baptized, you know, but as often as you do this. So there's only one that was a repetitive ordinance, and that's communion. And I don't think Jesus was into a bunch of, uh, you know, religiosity that uh, we've tended to sort of make it in that sense. You know, there's something about it. My father republished an old book, I'm getting off track here, uh, called uh, Christ Paralyzed Church X-Ray. And uh, in other words, let's put the church through an X-ray machine and find out what's, uh, what she's suffering from and so on. But in that book, he's the, uh, he was the uh, Macrossan who uh, the, uh, the faith camp have um, uh, translated his book on healing in the atonement and so on. But he, he says that in the Greek, when it says that uh, uh, for this cause many are weak and sickly among you because you haven't discerned the Lord's body, he said because you don't make a distinction between the body and the blood. In other words, we all know what the blood represents, cleansing, forgiveness, and so on. But the bread represents healing, he says. 
and because we don't make a distinction when we take them for this cause, many are weak and sickly. Now, he's an expert in the Greek. I'm not. I was telling the Maranatha crowd that uh, my father said he knew a little Greek and a little Hebrew, and I'm the same. Little Greek runs a clothing shop, and a little Hebrew has a delicatessen. But, uh, <laughs> but, anyway. but the, there is something about communion I'm sure that we've, you know, we've yet to really tap into. And one of the things is that these emblems represent something, and we should proclaim, you know, proclaim, you know, the, the song, He is Lord, He is Lord, He's risen from the dead. Sometimes those songs just come out, but if we make them a proclamation with faith, whatever is not a faith is sin, it becomes a weapon. You know, the, the psalmist talks about the high praises of God in our mouth and a two-edged sword in our hand to bind kings with no, uh, nobles with fetters of iron. There's something about the high praise that literally can bind principalities and powers. And it's a realm that, again, we don't touch many, uh, many times, but I think there's something about those, you know, when we declare something, you know, uh, He is Lord, He is Lord, He is risen from the dead, and, and so on. But we, we, we sing it with, you know, a declaration to remind the enemy, He is Lord. He stripped you. He made an open show of you. He triumphed over you. Satan, we have the upper hand, you know, and, uh, and so on. So the blood, they overcame by the blood. We've got the Word of God, where we can use the Word of God as a weapon. Jesus used it. Remember, it is written, it is written, it is written. And uh, thank God for the power of God's Word that we can con uh, declare to the enemy what the Word of God says. We have a name. The Bible says that name is above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Do we really believe that? You know, sometimes I've got to catch myself. You know, am I just saying it? Is it just something that sort of, you know, dribbles off the end of my tongue, so to speak, or is there a real faith behind it? You know, again, whatsoever is not a faith is sin. Can we say it with an authority, the name of Jesus? You know, in the name of Jesus, these are weapons that we, uh, that we have. Uh, Another one, and uh, let me just throw this out, and uh, this is, uh, I'm not going to put this down in uh, concrete, I think I was sharing with uh, Jeremiah, but uh, many, many years ago, uh, this, is, uh, this is a revelation by deduction. You know, there's revelations, and then there's, uh, you sort of uh, can uh, deduce uh, something, but I was asking myself this question about uh, speaking in tongues. Why would I speak in the tongue of an angel? Though I speak in the tongues of men or angels. Now, if I was speaking to you in Swahili, which I can't do, but uh, none of you would understand it, right? A tongue is to communicate in. You know, if I uh, said to my friend Sam there, Sam, stand up, it's an order, you know, he would stand up. And, uh, and so I am speaking in the tongue of an angel. Am I praising that angel? No. Am I worshiping that angel? No, because that is forbidden in the Word of God. Is that right? John tried doing that, and the angel says, hey, not me, brother. I'm one of your, you know, your buddies sort of thing. Don't, you know, praise God type thing. So he deflected the praise. But it's not me that's speaking. It is the Spirit of God that's speaking, hopefully, if it's a genuine tongue. Isn't that right? So the Spirit of God is uh, speaking, and what are angels? They're ministering spirits. They're servants. They stand or hang around the throne of God, the Bible says, waiting to receive orders. So could it be that when we speak in tongues, the Spirit of God is assigning orders to the angelic realm? 
Now, if that's true, then there is a power in tongues that, you know, we really don't, uh, haven't really tapped into. It's more than just a heavenly language or your prayer language or so on, but it's a prayer language. It could be a warfare prayer language. And again, sometimes at least I find myself, you know, when I, uh, something will come over me and that tongue becomes a lot stronger than just, you know, sort of, how you doing, friend, you know, it's sort of a, an anger, if you like, a righteous anger that rises up within us. And, uh, and so I think there are weapons that we need to begin to implement, if you like, against the, uh, the powers of darkness. And, uh, and uh, I'm not saying it's experiment in that sense, but at the same time, there's uh, an adversary that we need to uh, reckon on and, and deal with. And um, our time is uh, almost gone. Um, you know, God is a God of war. He's got armies. And uh, we have to, uh, you know, wage a good warfare. Paul says uh, to Timothy, wage a good warfare. There is a spiritual warfare that we are involved in. But uh, collectively, I think we have power, a greater power. One will chase a thousand, again, two ten thousand. And when we come together and we have a common goal, you know, I believe we can do something, you know. I believe, uh, I don't believe, I should say, in abortion, obviously, and uh, appreciate those that are willing to stand outside and so on and so forth, but there is a spirit that we're dealing with. You know, it's not flesh and blood. It's not a building. It's not a bunch of doctors or whoever is in there. There is a demonic entity that needs to be dealt with. And, uh, you know, we've got to somehow figure out a way. How do we find out and how do we deal with that thing? How do we cripple that thing? where people then are restored, if you like, to the right mind and say, listen, this is terrible. I shouldn't be doing this. They come under conviction and walk out and put down their implements and so on. I, I believe we have that authority. And, uh, and uh, we, we've got to, um, you know, something needs to rise up within us. That's all I can say. But uh, this, uh, this portion of Scripture has always been something that I've looked at over the years many, many times and said, you know, David... I, I want to be one of those Davids, you know. I want to, uh, uh, when it comes to the enemy, deal with the enemy. I've been praying, uh, there's uh, one of the Psalms here. Uh, let me just take you to it if I can quickly. Okay, it would elude me. Uh -huh. Oh. Anyway, it's, it's where, um, well, not some, okay, I've got it, I think. Too many psalms here. Uh, okay, here we go. Psalm 45. Verse 3, Gird thy sword on thy thigh, Almighty One, in splendor, in, the, in thy majesty, in thy majesty ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. For thy right hand teaches thee awesome things. Thine arrows are sharp. The people fall under thee. Thine arrows are in the heart of the king's enemy. Uh, one of the prayers that I've been praying is, Lord, release your arrows into the heart of your enemy. I don't always know who the enemy is. I'll be Frank, I don't, uh, you know, uh, I don't have all the answers in that sense, but God does know. And the Bible says He releases His arrows. In fact, you go through the Psalms many, many times, it talks about God's arrows. And God has got weapons. 
And I believe we can pray and say, Lord, release your arrows into the heart of the enemy. In our government, I pray on a regular basis for our government, for the, uh, the whole thing that is going on right now, the enemy that is behind this, uh, this warfare that uh, our nation is facing, our president is facing, and so on. You know, Lord, release your arrows. You know, bring to light the hidden things. There's another prayer. Lord, bring those things to light. And I think as we, uh, we get serious about that, God will do something, Amen. you know. We've got, to, uh, we've got to engage in some sort of warfare. Otherwise, we're going to lose this nation. I believe that. You know, unless something is done, there is a battle going on, and they're pulling out all the stops and doing everything within their power to bring this nation down. I just Somebody sent me an email. I sent it on to Michael Brown. He was ahead of me, but uh, he's already written a thing on it. But, uh, you know, they've, uh, they've taken out God now out of swearing in, the, in Congress. You know, I swear by God whatever it is. You know, it's just been eliminated, and one of the guys, obviously a Republican, said, listen, could we do that again? You left out the word God, and, uh, you know, Adler, you know, said, nope, we don't need God in there or something. You know, I mean, you know, this nation is losing God. I mean, it's lost God a long time ago, but in that sense of acknowledging God even, next thing they'll be wiping it off our coins and, and so on. You know, we're, we're in a major battle, and I believe the church, again, is, uh, is the... Uh, the last bastion, if you like, against that. And, uh, so um, we need to get inspired, you know. Gird your sword on your thigh, you know. Ride victoriously. Ride with the Lord. And uh, let's bring down the enemy. Let's see a victory. Let's, uh, uh, let's uh, see it take place. It may not take place in a, in a week. It may not place, take place in a, a couple of weeks. I remember when I was with Mike Bickle many, many years ago, and they were praying and asking God, why is it that we've been praying you know, week after week after week, year after year after year for revival uh, and so on. And, and one of the leaders there uh, had a, uh, a picture of a chain. And every time there was a sort of a prayer meeting, God was adding a, a link to the chain. And he said, when this chain is long enough, then I can bind the enemy, something like that. Another illustration I read many years ago of a missionary who uh, shared the story of... Um, uh, something that happened uh, when he was a missionary in uh, Thailand, and they were taking uh, a big Buddha, a uh, statue of Buddha, across a river on a raft. And uh, the thing tipped over and sank into the, uh, the bottom of the river, something like 12 or 15 feet deep. And they didn't have the equipment to, uh, to lift that uh, Buddha out of, the, uh, out of the, the, the water. And so they came up with a plan that they would go down, put ropes underneath, and then they would tie... Uh, lengths of bamboo with the air, of course, inside the, uh, uh, the bamboo. And uh, they kept adding more and more layers of bamboo. And it said, finally, they put one more piece of bamboo in, and that thing gradually floated to the surface. But he likened it, you may be that last bamboo, so to speak, in prayer. In other words, we never know. But uh, we've got to begin somewhere. And it may be, it may not be one prayer meeting or two or three or four, but, uh, you know, God is uh, keeping an account. And as we take it seriously, I believe God can uh, change the course of this nation. And uh, so let's, uh, let's bind the strong men. Uh, let's believe that God can uh, send those arrows into the heart of the enemy. Amen.